Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off from last week, starting at verse 7. And as you're turning there, I want you to think back. Maybe it'll be a while ago, or maybe it'll be recently. Think back to a time in your life when it was, very, it was made very clear to you that you were not in the in crowd. You know what I mean? Uh, for me, I remember a time I uh, entered a new class in the eighth grade. I didn't know anybody, and I, I sat down. I happened to sat, sit down at the lunch table where the cool kids sat. I didn't know any better, but I was, was not long before I was very aware of the fact that I was not in that group. All of us have probably had a situation where it was clear to us that we were not in. and Maybe even we've had situations where we pushed others out. Well, we're going to see something very interesting in this passage today. We're going to see that Jesus takes the people who think they're in and pushes them out. And Jesus takes the people who are out and gloriously welcomes them in. And the consequence of being out with Jesus is much, much worse than not sitting at the lunch table with the cool kids. No, it's to miss out on salvation, on real life, on everything. So I think this passage will be very helpful for us as we'll see many important things here. So Mark uh, 3, starting at verse 7, and I'll read through 35. So I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and from Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him... And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all with diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits, they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went on up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed Twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, 
but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who were in the house, who were around him, he said to them, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Most interesting passage. If you've been around the Bible for a while, and by the way, if you haven't, we're glad that you're here, and I think hopefully you'll be able to learn from this just as well. But if you've been around the Bible for a while, you've probably heard some of these stories before. You know, the crowds pressing on Jesus to the point where he has to get on a boat. You know, that's one that the kids would like. And then the idea of Jesus naming the 12 disciples. I mean, in the children's bulletin today, there's a picture that the kids can color. Adults, you can color as well, if you like, right? That's a popular story. Jesus' interactions with his family are not quite as popular, probably because they make us feel somewhat awkward, and they should. And then there's this issue of the unpardonable sin that when we read it, it might make our skin crawl. And a number of people throughout my years in ministry have asked me, what does this mean? Because it's not just a little scary. So what we have in this section are several very colorful, interesting stories. But why are they all here? What is the common thread that is weaving throughout them? Well, as I studied the passage, looked at it, I think here, and this is what everybody agrees, basically, that the common thread in this section is the idea of being in or being out. There are three different categories of people we see here. They are the in people, the out people, and then the really out people. But the point in putting all these stories together is not simply to make the point that there are in people and there are out people. Because, I mean, of course that's going to be the case. That's the case with you. There are people who you accept into your house, you know, your family members and all. And there's people who you say, no, you can't come in my house, you know, the door-to-door salesman or whatever. The point, though, is not simply that there are in people and there are out people. The point is those who think they are in are actually pushed out. And those who think, you know, legitimately that they are out are welcomed in in such a glorious, wonderful way that it reveals who Jesus really is. Well, as we look at these stories, uh, I think we will see what, into what categories we fall ourselves. And there is a strong warning here, no doubt. And the strong warning is, don't presume that you have the inside track with Jesus for the wrong reasons. Because then you're in a very dangerous place. But there's also, uh, well, and, and this is what Jesus means later on in his ministry when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is truly one of my disciples. There, there's that reality that Jesus makes clear to us. But, but there's something also that is incredibly comforting about what we see here. And that is, if you are out, and you know that you are out, and you know that you have no legitimate access to Jesus because of who you are and what you've done, then he welcomes you gloriously. He takes you who is far away and brings you near and brings you close. And and that is good news indeed. Okay, so let's identify the people in these categories in this passage. Let's start with those who are in. Who are they? Well, first of all, we have the crowds here, right? Large crowds are following Jesus. And a key to understanding this whole passage 
is to pay attention to the location cues when it talks about where people are. And that's what we'll be thinking through as we look at this passage. Where are the people? So we have these large crowds that are following Jesus. And again, the proximity here is that they are very, very close to Jesus. They are pressing against his body so close that he's afraid they're going to crush him. And notice verse 7 where these, ca- these crowds are coming from. As far as Tyre and Sidon. Friends, that's a 100-mile journey. They traveled 100 miles, probably on foot, to get to Jesus. And they're not from the nation of Israel, so they have no legitimate access to Israel's Messiah at all. But nevertheless, what does Jesus do with these crowds? Are there ropes sectioning Jesus from the crowds? No. Is there a VIP section? No. Jesus lets the crowds come to him so close that they're, they're touching him, it says. And friends, think about it. These are people with diseases. These are people who are demon-possessed, and none of them have probably had a bath in quite a long time. And yet, he's letting them come so close to him. Friends, I'd be saying, personal space, personal space. Jesus doesn't do that. And that shows what kind of person he is. He's welcoming the outcast. He's welcoming the crowds to him. He's, we see his kindness and his compassion. Well, there's another group here that are clearly the in people here that Jesus accepts to himself and welcomes, and those are the disciples. Look there at verse 13. And again, pay attention to these location cues. And he went up on a mountain and called to, uh, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So, a few things to pay attention to with the location. First, they're going up on a mountain, and there he literally name he, he appoints literally names the 12 apostles now up on a mountain that's going to trigger in the jewish readers minds the idea of moses going up on a mountain and getting the law and then giving it to the 12 tribes of of, of israel but if the people are really paying attention as they read this section they're not simply going to think oh he's talking about moses here they're going to realize that he's talking about the one about of whom Moses said, when Moses said, the Lord God will raise up among you a prophet like me. See, Moses predicted a greater Moses to come. And Jesus, by going up on this mountain, is saying, I'm the greater Moses to come. And, and notice here what Jesus is doing that makes him far greater than Moses. First of all, he goes up on the mountain. Well, Moses goes up on the mountain and gives people the law, Right? And the law is there to mediate their relationship with God. If you want access to God, you've got to obey this law. Jesus doesn't do that. He goes up on the mountain and calls people to be with him, to, to know him personally, intimately. He wants them with him. All that language, they came to him. He appointed the disciples that they might be with him. Friends, Jesus is coming to the people not to invite them into a relationship with God mediated by the law, but to invite them into a relationship with God mediated by himself. Because who is he? He is the Emmanuel, God with us. He has come to bring God close. And, And notice who he brings close to him. See, because... He's coming to establish a relationship not based on law, based on you know, the gospel, based on himself. He calls the, the strangest group to himself. He calls the most ragtag group of nobodies he could possibly find. Why does he do that? 
Because he's not interested in people who think they have the inside track with him because they can keep the law. No, he's interested in people who want to be with him. And he chooses people so that he can be with them. And notice, not only does he take the people to be with him, there's another clear contrast with Moses here. He then shares his ministry with them. Look at the rest of verse 13. It says that he appointed them that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, if you're here for the other sermons, think about what Jesus' ministry is all about. It's about Jesus preaching the gospel and casting out demons. So when he calls the twelve, what does he tell them to do? Here, hold my stuff while I do the real work? No. He gives them the authority to cast out demons and to preach the gospel as well. Jesus is calling a group of people to himself, and he's sharing with them not only his life, but his ministry as well. And that's another clear contrast to Moses, because what we see with Moses, Moses goes up on the mountain, and he gets the law, and there's a clear difference between Moses and the people. The people do not have access to Moses. They can't go up on the mountain with Moses or they will die. But Jesus, who is actually God, much more holy and set apart than Moses ever was, he invites the people with him and he shares with him the ministry. He gives them authority to do what he is doing. And friends, uh, this is not meant to be simply for the 12 apostles here. The 12 apostles are meant to be a paradigm of discipleship in general. This is true for you. If you're a believer here, Jesus wants to be with you. He has come to be with you, and Jesus wants to give you his ministry. The New Testament develops this idea even further with the idea of union with Christ. We become one with him because he shares his spirit with us. The Bible makes these staggering claims like, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And the Bible says that we are united to Christ such that all that he has, he gives to us. Friends, that's love. He wants to be with us. And he shares his ministry with us. He says to us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, we'll do that today, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us authority to go out in his name and do what he was doing, that is to preach the gospel. Friends, are you doing that? Are you doing that? It strikes me that this passage here is a very uh, complete picture of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is somebody who has intimacy with Christ, who knows Christ and is with Christ. And a Christian is somebody who speaks God's word to others. Friends, is that what you understand being a Christian to be all about? It's not about just doing your time, coming here on Sunday morning. It's about knowing Jesus and speaking for him. And friends, as I say that, I hope you don't understand that as simply a duty you got to bear. Yeah, it's hard, but do it. It'll be worth it in the long run. No, I hope you understand this as a glorious invitation to be with the most valuable person in the entire world and to share with him the greatest possible work. Okay, so now we've seen how people who were outside are brought in. Let's now see how the people who were inside are are pushed out. So the people who think they're inside are pushed out. Well, let me ask you this. Um, who do you think would, would legitimately claim the most inside track with Jesus? Who would have the right to, you know, just, just call him up and, and be with him uh, all the time? I, I think you could agree that it's his own family, right? It's Jesus' own flesh and blood, the people who he, he grew up with in his household. 
And if you think family connections are strong today, they're nothing compared to what they were back then. Back then, family was everything. But look here how Jesus treats his own family. Verse 20. Then he went home. This is probably the home of Andrew that was talked about earlier in this book. But he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Again, by the way, notice he's accepting the crowd with him. He doesn't say when the crowd is, you know, pressing in on him, man, can't a man get a meal now and then? No, he doesn't say that. He, He accepts them. They come to him. And notice what happens. And when his family heard it, that is the great crowds around him, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So Jesus' own family, and we find out later that this is his mother and his brothers, are very concerned. They see thousands of people flocking to Jesus, and they see him casting out demons and healing people. And you've got to understand, his ministry, while being wonderful and great, probably does not look pretty. It doesn't look nice, neat, and tidy. No, it probably looks very dangerous and very messy. I mean, every time a demon is cast out in Scripture, it's messy. And there's also, as we're well aware, people who are very angry at him. I mean, Jesus is light coming into darkness, and people love their evil deeds, so they like to stay in darkness, and they get mad at the light. And as as his family is watching this unfold, I can so imagine his mother seeing the intense reactions that his son is engendering here and saying, don't touch my son. I'm scared for him. I want him out of the situation. So she goes there to seize him. Again, this, this might be a very different picture of Mary than we've sometimes been accustomed to thinking of. You know, she, she's wanting to, to grab him and, and rescue him from this mess because she thinks to herself that the only reason why these crowds are pressing in on him like this, the only reason why this is happening is he must be crazy. He must be out of his mind. Well, verse 31 explains the rest of the story. And his mother and brothers came, standing outside. Uh, They sent to him and called to him. So again, Jesus is in the house. His mother and uh, brothers are outside the house, and they're calling to him. It doesn't say exactly what they're saying, but probably something like, Jesus, we know you're in there. Jesus, come out now. Jesus, we're doing this for your own good. We're not leaving until you come with us. We love you. Now, the location clues are important. They're standing outside, right? And, and the people who he's with are, are inside with him. And what does Jesus say? He says, who are my real mother and brothers? And then he says, these are my real mother and brothers. And now, friends, as painful as it is, think about how offended his family would have been. I mean, they love him. They're going to the effort to track him down. They've probably put themselves at risk to identify with Jesus here. They're concerned about his safety. I mean, from their perspective, it looks pretty bad. He's in a house with 12 guys, several of whom are quite sketchy. There's a tax collector. There's a zealot. These are not the kind of, this is not the kind of company that a good, upstanding Jewish mother would want her son to keep. Uh, Mary probably thinks that Jesus is going to get himself killed because of how radical he has become. And she's right, right? And Jesus tells them straight up, you guys are not my real family. This is my real family. Oh, I imagine Mary cried herself all the way home. And yet, and yet, as offensive as that seemed, it was the most gracious and loving thing he could have possibly said to her. 
You know why? Because if Mary thinks that her motherhood of Jesus gives her a special in with him, even as she misunderstands what he's come to do, then she is much further out than she can possibly imagine. And it's the kindest thing in the world for Jesus to push her out, because unless she realizes she's out, she will never, ever truly come in. Using my imagination here a bit, but I could imagine that what Mary feels, fears most is that her son will get himself killed. But that's exactly the very thing that she needs most from him. Because unless he dies for her sins, she, the bearer of God, will spend eternity in hell. And friends, if family connections do not give you a special in with Jesus, then neither does mere church attendance or mere baptism or mere following the Christian traditions. What does give you a special in with Jesus? Well, what what does Jesus say here? Verse 35. For whoever does the will of God is my brother, sister, and mother. Jesus is bringing in the outcasts. Let me tell you something encouraging here. that Mark doesn't mention, but nevertheless, I think we ought to understand if we want to understand this section. Um, The brothers of Jesus, guess what? Or at least two of them. They come to faith. They come to him. One of the brothers of Jesus we know in Scripture is James, and we know that because in the book of Acts, it says that James is a brother of the Lord. So James is, 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 you know, biologically, half-brother at least, of of Jesus. Um, Say half-brother because obviously Joseph was not Jesus's his earthly father, right? He's born of the Spirit. Well, James is this the one who wrote the epistle of James that's towards the end of your Bibles. And let me tell you how that epistle begins. James does not say, hey, I'm the bro of Jesus, listen to me. No, he doesn't do that. He says, James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls his older brother Lord and calls himself his servant. He got it. He came in the right way. And there's another brother, Jude. He wrote a letter in the New Testament. We know that because he calls himself the brother of James. Interesting there. He won't call himself the brother of Jesus, but he lets everybody know that by calling himself the brother of James. And he calls himself servant of Jesus Christ. In God's grace and mercy, his his own family finally comes to know him. But they do not come to know him based on their family connections. They come based on his ministry and his lordship. Now, you have to wonder, though, had Jesus not cast them out, would they have ever come in? Friends, are you doing the will of God? Are you living your, faith, faith, are you living your life with him and fulfilling his plan to, to speak God's word to others? If so, if so, you are the real brother and sister and mother of Jesus. And friends, you should revel in that identity. That's who you are. Jesus invites you close to him. Friends, Jesus is not casting us out so that we stay out. He's not doing that to his parents or to his, to his mom and his brothers. He's only pushing them out so that they know how to come in. Now, friends, we have one more category here, and that is the people who are really out. And they are talked about right dab smack in the very center of this whole section here. And that itself is illustrative, right? They're right in the center of everything, and they think that they are the ones who are in, 
and yet they're the ones who are most far out, so far out that they can never come back in. The scribes here have come all the way down from Jerusalem to investigate what Jesus is doing. And I think that this is something of the Jewish leader's official verdict on Jesus. So so this is their judgment on Jesus. And notice what that judgment is. Verse 22. He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. Now, notice a couple things from this. First, they do not deny the special power that Jesus has. They're affirming his ability to cast out demons and to heal people and to to teach in a unique way. My non-Christian friends here, if Jesus didn't do any of those things, don't you think the Pharisees would have just pointed that out? If he was really a fraud, wouldn't they have just, you know, pulled up the curtain and revealed, you know, the, the man behind the curtain? Wouldn't they have just pointed that out? No, they recognize that this guy is doing something they've never seen before. But their official verdict, and again, I think they're speaking on behalf of the Jewish established religion, their official verdict is that this is not the God's spirit's power. It's the power of Satan. And that is the worst thing they could have possibly said to him. They're looking at the work that he's doing, all the people who are being healed, all the teaching that he's doing, the crowds and all, and they are saying, you are from the pit of hell. That's what they're saying to Jesus. And friends, that tells us something very sobering about the human heart. You see, we often think to ourselves, if only I could see a miracle, then I would believe. If only so-and-so could see a miracle, then so-and-so would believe. But friends, these are people here who have been following Jesus and investigating Jesus from the very beginning. They've seen it all, and they're not denying the facts of what happened. But their hearts are so hard that they're interpreting Jesus as raw evil. And Jesus then points out how ridiculous they are. And friends, understand this. Whenever uh, we deny Jesus and go into unbelief, it makes us stupid. Jesus says this, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. In other words, seriously, guys? You think Satan is going to cast out Satan? That's, that's crazy. That's the best you can do? And then Jesus gives an alternative explanation. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying, the reason why these demons are being cast out, the reason why Satan is being plundered left and right, is that Jesus, in fact, is the stronger man. The one stronger than Satan, so that he can bind Satan, and is now plundering his house. And this, by the way, relates to what Mark said at the beginning of the Gospel. Think back, I think it's three Sundays ago now, Steve preached, Uh, And he explained how John the Baptist said to the people, After me comes one who is stronger than I. And then John the Baptist explicitly connects that strength to the Holy Spirit. John says, I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then the very next thing that happens is that Jesus uh, is baptized by John, and the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. And then the next thing that happens is that the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And that word drive is the same word that's used for Jesus casting out demons. The point of all that is, when you connect these sections together, the strength of Jesus' ministry clearly comes from the Spirit. And that Spirit is powerful. The Spirit is not some mystical force that you feel in the still 
quiet moments of your heart. No, the Spirit is power. That's why all this stuff is happening. The religious leaders see that Jesus is is possessed in one sense, but he is not possessed by a demon. He is possessed, or rather possesses, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And that's why he could bind the strong one. The implication here is that if you reject the Spirit, you reject the powerful the power of Jesus' ministry, and then you have no hope. Jesus explains in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus is here drawing a contrast. The mother and brothers of Jesus have sinned against Jesus because they think he's mad. But they haven't attributed his power to an unclean spirit. And that's why they can be saved in the end. And they are saved in the end. But the religious leaders attribute his power to an unclean spirit. And because of that, they've rejected the power of Jesus' ministry. And there's no hope for them. Now, friends, I admit that there's, there's some confusing elements here if we start figuring out, okay, what does this all mean? And I confess, I don't have it all figured out. I, I don't have the unpardonable sin all figured out. I'm inclined to think that there are some aspects of what's going on here that are unique to that you know, first century thing where the Jewish leaders officially rejected Jesus. I'm inclined to think that because nowhere in the New Testament do we ever see commands against blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in exactly this way. Nevertheless, I think there are some universal principles we can learn from this, and and they are here. First, Jesus is willing to forgive all sin against him. I mean, that, that first part here, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. Friends, every sin you commit against Jesus can be forgiven. If you spent years of denying Jesus, he will forgive you. If you've sought to kill Jesus and murder God's people, you can be forgiven. The Apostle Paul was killing Christians, and Jesus came to him and said, Why are you persecuting me? And he, Paul repented, and he was forgiven. The church that I was part of when we were uh, in Turkey several years ago had a high school student living in the church. They made a room for him, and he was living there because he got kicked out of his family for being a Christian. But the reason he heard the gospel in the first place is because he was attending the church trying to blow it up. He can be forgiven. We can all be forgiven. But the sin that is not forgiven is when you witness the power of the Spirit again and again in your life, and you reject him. You close your ears and you say, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. And eventually, a hardness in your heart occurs. And then any desire you once had to believe in Jesus is gone. And you look back at that time in your life when you strongly considered believing in Jesus, and you think, well, that was the silliest thing in the world I ever thought of. Now, friends, let me be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that before you become a Christian, you shouldn't investigate it and read and pray and think diligently about it. You should. And if you're afraid that you've committed the unpardonable sin, well, then that's a really good sign that you haven't because if you had, you honestly wouldn't care. But I think this point we can take. Don't pretend that you are the one in the driver's seat in your relationship with God. 
you can't decide if or when you will come to Jesus in the same way you can decide if or when you will retire or change jobs or get married. We don't have that kind of authority. We may, in the process, harden our hearts to the point where we don't want to come to him anymore. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If we see clearly the way of escape through Jesus, if we see what Jesus has done on the cross in dying for our sins and welcoming us, though we are an outcast, he welcomes us in. We must come. We must come. You cannot save yourselves. You're not in the driver's seat as the religious leaders thought they were. You can't stand over Jesus' ministry and evaluate him. No, we should be far off. We should be away, but, but he has given us every opportunity to come near by his mercy and grace. Do you believe in him? Do you come to him? Let's pray.